If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 19. While you're turning there, let me just say, if you follow me on any of the social media platforms, you know that my wife and I have been on a 30th anniversary adventure. And it has been a wonderful time. Thank you. Uh, many of you have been praying for us and uh, uh, praying for Edie especially, I'm sure, uh, over those uh, 13 days that we've been gone. It has been an amazing time. Uh, this is something that we had planned for some time. It wasn't just a spur of the minute. We had planned to take a, a special 30th anniversary trip, and, uh, and God just kind of uh, helped everything fall into place for that. I'm thankful that I am serving a people called First Norfolk that uh, allows me that kind of uh, freedom to be able to invest in my marriage in that way. And you have always been supportive in that. And so I'm thankful for you, uh, church family, uh, not just uh, saying, okay, he's gone, but literally uh, going before the throne of God's grace on behalf of my wife and myself and on behalf of our family. Um, and uh, by the way, today marks 18 years that I've served as pastor at First Baptist Church of Norfolk. And it's been, you know, I, I, I hear people talk about how painful being a pastor is and blah, blah, blah. And, and um, make no mistake, I, it, it, has, it has some high points and it has some low points, but uh, serving this family of faith for 18 years has been a delight, and I'm thankful for every one of those years, uh, even, even when those years were challenging or days were challenging. Uh, you have been a people who have loved and supported me and my family, and I'm thankful for you. Uh, so Edie and I, uh, by the way, if you're newly married, don't wait 30 years to go on a long trip with your wife. That, that's another lesson. Uh, it, it, it took 30 years for us to go on a real trip like this. But, but we had a dream and we had a plan. And that dream, we knew that there was going to be a starting point. We knew that there was going to be an ending point. We knew that there was one place that we wanted to go to. Uh, but the other aspects of the journey were kind of up in the air, at least in my thinking. Now, the starting point was Portland, Oregon. So we left here on a Monday and we flew to Portland, Oregon. That was the starting place. And the ending place was Portland, Oregon. And yesterday we got on the plane uh, in Portland, Oregon, about 6.45 uh, Pacific time a.m., uh, to make our trip back here. So the starting point was Portland, the ending point was Portland, and then the one mission that we had, the one real deal kind of journey that we wanted to make uh, was to Zion National Park. That was, the, that was the thing. That was where Edie wanted to go and she wanted to hike the Narrows and I wanted to go because I wanted to be my, with my wife hiking the Narrows. And I'm just kidding. It was great. It was beautiful. It was awesome. But that was, that was our agreed upon place. And there were other stops in between that we wanted to see, but we knew that when we began at Portland, we had to get to Zion. And when we left Zion, we had to get back to Portland. We didn't have all the steps in between. We didn't have reservations every day somewhere. We had to really work at those reservations to spend the night someplace. 
because we didn't know how long we were going to stay at a particular place. And so we had to work real hard to get uh, places uh, where uh, we would both feel comfortable staying. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Motel 6 kind of guy, and I didn't marry a Motel 6 kind of woman, you know? And, and that's a good thing. That's, that's a great thing. I love that, right? She, she, uh, she and I both wanted to stay in places that weren't so expensive that we could only, you know, we'd have to be camping out the last three days of our trip. We didn't want to stay in those type of places, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to stay in, in uh, flea bags either, right? And so uh, we, had to, we had to work real hard at that. So the journey was driven by the beginning point. It was driven by the one mission, and that was to get to Zion, and it was driven by the ending point, and all the points in between were uncertain. So we, we uh, got to Portland, we left uh, Portland the next day, Tuesday, and we went to the Oregon coast, and we had a great time at Cannon Beach and those places, and we drove uh, the, the Pacific Coast Highway there, uh, 101, and, and took pictures. It was gorgeous, and we were making our way uh, to Zion, uh, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching onward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. But anyway, we were making our way, and the good news is that as you're going from Portland down to Zion, uh, depending on which way you take, uh, which road you take, you're going to pass through some trout fishing streams. It wasn't the mission, but it was a good little land yap right? Y'all know Lanyap, a little something extra. And so we drove through and I got to fish the upper Sacramento River in Northern California. Yay. Um, and then we drove into Bakersfield, got to Bakersfield where Edie got to see two of her cousins who lived there. And we had lunch with them. We left Bakersfield, got to drive through the Mojave Desert. Wow. Crazy. And all the way to Zion, Springdale, Utah. Uh, and we spent a couple of nights, three or four nights at, at, at Springdale, three nights, I think, in Springdale, Utah. We hiked the Narrows and, and hiked around, and it was great. It was wonderful. Everything that we hoped it would be. The mission was there. But then part of the mission was getting back uh, to Portland because that was the ending point. So we left Zion and we made our way. Didn't really know where we were going to stay. Decided we would stay in Park City, which was different than what all my plans, all my spreadsheets, did, never had Park City, Utah on the plan. But we decided to stop in Park City. Found that was a beautiful place and wonderful. Got to fish the middle section of the Provo River. Again, not the plan, but I did get to fish the middle section of the Provo River, River for trout. And, and we stayed there and it was great. And then we left uh, 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 Park City, uh, just beautiful area, and Edie found a cabin in Glen, Montana, on the banks of the Big Hole River. Yes! That was great! We stayed at the Bear Bungalow on the banks of the Big Hole River in Glen, Montana. That is in the middle of nowhere, Montana, if you've ever want to go. It's just south of Melrose, not much at Melrose, nothing in Glen. Uh, to drive into town is to drive on uh, Highway 15 north or south, about 30 minutes, uh, going 80 miles an hour, which is the speed limit in Montana. By, by the way, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> 80 miles an hour is great. So we, we go to Glen, and I got to stay there. Edie and I stayed there in the cabin. She read. I went to fish 
and got to fish the big whole river, and it was wonderful. If you want to see any pictures, you can get on any of my social media platforms and see that. Had more fish than desserts uh, on social media this time. So, uh, But it was a great time. So then we left Glen, Montana, and went up through Missoula and uh, on Friday and uh, through Coeur d'Alene and and just beautiful country through Washington State, back across the Columbia River, hit Interstate 84 and rode the uh, Interstate 84 on the banks of the Columbia River, Oregon side, all the way into Portland. Spent the night in Portland. Friday night, got up at about five uh, o'clock Saturday morning, got on an airplane, connected to Seattle, left Seattle, went to Detroit, left Detroit, got into Norfolk, International Airport at 12.30 this morning, uh, made our way home uh, and got to bed about two. I slept in this morning, got up at about five. And that's not a joke, that's sleeping in and I did get up at five and, and then got here. And, and I can't tell you how excited I am for that, for that trip, that mission fulfilled. Do you know our Christian life is something like that? We have a beginning point, and we have a mission. We know what that mission is, and we have an ending point. The beginning point is when we come to faith in Christ. Uh, we we, we have, have a new beginning, a new life. We were dead in our sin and trespass. We made alive together in Christ Jesus. And we have a, a, a beginning point. Now, our mission, the, the Zion, that, that is telling others who Jesus is. Acts 1.8, we've been talking about our calling as a church, but our calling as followers of Christ. We want to tell others who Jesus is. And, and then uh, we have an ending. And by the way, the ending is in the presence of God for all eternity as followers of Christ. And, and so, but all those points in between, it's uncertain. We, we don't know all those points in between. We don't know every twist or every turn. And as it is for us as followers of Christ, so it is for our church. Our church, we have a beginning point where God brought us together in 1805 as the church called First Norfolk. That really wasn't our name at the point at that time, but uh, Cumberland Street Church and, and created us and made us His church brought us together, and for over 200 years, we have had a single mission, and that single mission is to fulfill our calling, glorify God by telling others who Jesus is, Acts 1-8. So our church has this mission. We don't know all the points in between, and we don't know all the stopping points. We don't know all the twists and the turns. We don't know when the Mojave Desert is going to show up or the beautiful mountains outside of Missoula are going to show up. We, we don't know when we're going to be out by a cool mountain stream or um, uh, in the middle of a desert where there's nothing. We, we don't know any of those places or any of those points, but we have a singular mission the whole way. We always have the same mission. Now, whether it's the church in the first century or the church in the 21st century, whether it's us in 1805 or us in 2021, we have the same mission. In Acts chapter 19, we see the church in Ephesus fulfilling her mission. Paul was, uh, went to Ephesus and spent three years teaching in the theater of Tyrannus. And, and as he spent his time there, Um, God began to do something through that church in Ephesus. God began to change hearts, and as he began to change hearts, he began to change lives and marriages and families, and he began to change even the culture of Ephesus. 
The community began to change. And in response to the community changing, because lives were changing and because hearts were changing, as the community changed, then there was outrage. Outrage by people that didn't believe Jesus, didn't believe the gospel, didn't like the things of God, that felt like their stuff was being threatened. They, they got up in arms. And that's what Acts 19 is about. 21 through 41 is, is about this outrage that happened because the church was on mission. Last week, Pastor Tim did a tremendous job communicating out of Acts chapter 18, talking about how that we can have uh, the courage to live faithfully for Jesus and fulfill the calling that God has given us uh, in spite of anxieties and fears. And where anxieties and fears might freeze us, God has brought us into his family through faith in Christ, and we belong to him. Pastor Tim said last week at, at one part of his message that really took hold of my heart is uh, God knew every part of you and he picked you anyway. Yeah, I love that. Uh, God, God saw the blackest parts of my blackest life, the darkest parts of my darkest life, the, the ugliest parts of my ugliest life, and, and he picked me anyway. He said, I want you to be mine. That's true for all of us, and that gives us courage in the face of, of anxious moments. Well, in Acts chapter 19, we see anxious moments striking the, the church there in Ephesus. And yet the church in Ephesus was the kind of church we want to be. If you look in verse 20, Acts 19 verse 20, it says, And the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You know what that means? It means that the word of God was more powerful than all the idols in the world. The word of God, the gospel, the truth of God... Uh, specifically about Jesus Christ, the Word of God was stronger than any other idea or thought or philosophy out there, that the Word of God grew mightily as it was shared persistently, and it prevailed. It, it was victorious. Can I tell you, that's what happened in the first century, and that's what should happen in the 21st century. As we look at this church and in Acts 19, and I'm just going to refer to a couple of points here um, at, at, at verse 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Just so the word of the Lord grew and prevailed, uh, grew mightily and prevailed. Now, verse 21, and when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. And he said, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who had ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, for he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. You go down to verse 26. This commotion was led by a guy named Demetrius. Verse 26, Demetrius says, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus... But throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with human hands. You know what was happening? What, 
what, what was happening is that the Word of God was prevailing in the first century Ephesus. And people were being transformed by the gospel, and it was influencing. The gospel was doing its work. The gospel, the power of God uh, to bring salvation and rescue to any human heart, this, this work of the gospel was having its way in the communities of, uh, uh, community of Ephesus and around Ephesus, and it was shaping and reshaping and transforming even the culture. Man, that's what I want to see in seven cities of Hampton Roads. I want want to see the gospel change hearts, transform lives, so that even the seven cities begin to change. Uh, In 1904, there was a thing called the Welsh Revival, and and there was a preacher named Evan Roberts who was about 22 years old when he began to preach there in Wales. And the the movement of the Welsh Revival began and and spread, and it exploded uh, through Wales and even Great Britain and beyond. And uh, in Wales, it, it was told that that so many people in those villages and hamlets of Wales were transformed by God's grace um, that uh, when the miners, and it's a mining community, when the miners would go and, uh, uh, to church and be rescued by God's grace and their characters changed and then have to go back to the mines and work, the mules would not respond to the miners anymore because the miners weren't using the crass language that they used to use. Everything began to change. I wonder what would happen if this church became the church like Ephesus and we began to see our community transformed by God's grace. I want that to be this church. I want this church to be like the church at Ephesus who in three years reached the whole community of Ephesus and into and throughout Asia so that everyone in Asia began to hear the good news, not because of some grand branding scheme, but because the gospel was being shared one person to one person at a time. Those lives and hearts were being transformed by God's grace. I want, to be a, I want to be a part of that church. I want this church to be that kind of church. So what will it take for us to be that kind of church? The well, first thing we know is that it, the church that changes the world is a church that must remain focused on mission. Verses 21 and 22, Paul, uh, who had been focused on mission and the word of God uh, grew mightily and prevailed, Uh, the apostle Paul had been focused on mission, but he had to remain focused on mission. It wasn't enough for him just to have... Uh, see what God had been doing in Ephesus. He, he knew that God was propelling him forward to even more people who had not yet heard the good news of God's rescuing love. And the church at Ephesus wasn't sitting, behind, sitting on its hind feet saying, okay, look at how God has done. And, and, and so we're finished. We've done all that we can do. No, they were continually pressing forward and looking for that yet one more person who had yet to hear the good news of God's rescuing love. Paul said, hey, listen, 
listen, I'm going to take the relief money that we've collected, and I'm going to go through a KN Macedonia, and I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to lay over. I'm going to. I'm going to lay over in, in Jerusalem. I'm going to give them the relief money, but then I must go to Rome. Why did he must? Why was he demanded, commanded, compelled by the Spirit of God to go to Rome? Because in Rome, people had yet to hear the good news of God's rescuing love. He was focused. The church at Ephesus was focused on mission. Friends, we, First Norfolk, we must be focused on mission. As a church, we must be focused on mission. There are things that will distract us. There are things that can derail us. But as a church, we must have a consistent, persistent, laser-like focus on the mission. We've got to tell people who Jesus is. That's our calling. There are a lot of good things, a lot of beautiful things, a lot of attractive things, a lot of neat things that can, that can shine over here and shine over there, and we can chase them down and lose sight of the mission that God has given us and lose sight of the calling that we must fulfill and fail to do the very thing that God has planted us here to do. And that is one thing. Tell people who Jesus is. And that's what the apostle Paul was committed to. I must go to Rome and people in Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, we must tell people who Jesus is. And so as a church, if we're going to be the kind of church that changes the world, we've got to be focused on the must. I must go to Rome. I must go and tell. What, what is the must in your life? And we're family. We're part of this church family. And, and, and God has given you a must. What is that must? For Edie and me, the must on our trip was Zion. For you, in the course of your everyday, what is the must for you? The must to where you must go or the must to whom you must go? Can, can I help you there? The must is simple. Jesus said in Acts 1-8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses for me. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, our must follows that outline in Acts 1-8. Our must, your must, I mean yours. We must tell our family who Jesus is. We must tell our friends who Jesus is. We must tell our neighbors who Jesus is. We must tell the nations who Jesus is, anything less than that is to be distracted by other concerns. But as a church that wants to change the world, First Norfolk, you and I individually, corporately, as a family, we must go to our family and our friends and the neighbors and the nations with the good news of God's rescuing love. We gotta tell people who Jesus is. And we must not compromise the truth. It is the word of the Lord that grew mightily and prevailed. Not some man-made, uh, made-up story about a mythical creation uh, called Jesus. We've got to tell the truth about who Jesus is. Undiluted, uncompromised, absolute truth. We believe that there is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved. We believe that belief in any other 
Little G-O-D is going to send you straight to hell. We believe that there is but one who bridges the distance between a holy God and sinful man, and that is Jesus. We believe that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right in the sight of God, but God sent Jesus to die for our sin upon a cross, to be raised from the dead, uh, so that we might find forgiveness and new life through faith in him. Jesus is the only hope for the world, for you, for me, forever. And we've got to tell the truth. There was a guy who wrote uh, 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 worship songs. Still writes worship songs, I guess. I'll, we'll never sing them here. But he wrote one song that we have sung here. It's a guy named Michael Gungor. Michael Gungor, uh, somewhere along the way, got sideways. And, and, and just what, what he tweeted out this week, I, ju- I just want to read it and, and, and tell you, this is what we must never do. Okay? In order to make himself feel good or uh, his followers on Twitter feel good, here's what he wrote. Quote, Jesus was Christ. Thumbs up, right? Jesus was Christ. He's the Messiah. So that first sentence, three words, Jesus was Christ, he got it right. Then he adds this. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. I don't even know what that means. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. All right, now, can I, can I just help you here? All of us are tempted to compromise at some level the absolute truth of who Jesus is when we're talking to our friends or our neighbors or even our family. But we must never, ever compromise the truth of who Jesus is. You see, it is the truth of the gospel. In all of its offense, it is the truth of the gospel and the gospel alone the good news of Jesus Christ that can rescue the souls of men and women and bring them into the family of God. It is not some compromised version of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is but one way to God. Wrong. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus was a good teacher and, and, and he taught us to love one another. Those are true statements. But if that's all you've got about Jesus, you don't have the full picture. Jesus is and always has been God himself. Jesus became flesh and bone, born in a manger in Bethlehem, slipped his deity in the skin and the sandals of humanity. He lived his life perfectly without blemish, fault, or sin so that he might go to a cross and die a criminal's death, not for anything that he had done, but for the sin that you and I have done. He was buried in the ground. He was raised three days later. He sits now at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for all who have placed their faith in him as their savior and king, Jesus. Jesus alone is the one who gives us life and hope and purpose and meaning. 
There is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved. There is power and power and power in the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone. So friends, you and I, we must tell others who Jesus is. The hope for living is not bound up in our skill of rhetoric or our persuasiveness of politic. The power is in the truth of the gospel. Jesus, who is God, died for our sin. And we must tell. We must tell our neighbors and the nations, our friends and our family who Jesus is. And when we do, the gospel takes root in the hearts of individuals and lives are transformed by God's grace. And as lives are being transformed by God's grace, guess what? Communities begin to change. Can I tell you, some of us have got so wrong-headed in this. We, we think that we change a community by changing a politician. Stop! That's not the Bible way. The Bible way is to tell somebody how that Jesus will give them life and hope and trust that the Spirit of God will bring new life and a new heart to that person who repents their sin, places their trust in Jesus, and that new life and that new heart will transform a family and transform a community. We change the world not through politics or branding. We change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we got to share. We got to share. And when the gospel takes root in a community, guess what's going to happen? Outrage. The church on mission will face outrage from the community. It's going to happen. The church on mission will face outrage. Verse 23 there's a great commotion created because of Christians, people of the way. There was a movement that was, uh, that was transforming. And look, rage that we see in this, here's what happened. Demetrius got all the silversmiths together, said, we're losing our money and we're going to lose our way of life if something doesn't change. This Jesus thing is getting out of hand. And, and, uh, and so the silversmiths and Demetrius, they start yelling at each other, and pretty soon people start getting together, and they all go to the uh, theater of Tyrannus where uh, the church met, and, and they started yelling and screaming and, and hollering and, and saying, God, uh, Diana is the goddess of the Ephesians over and over for two hours, and it was a mob. They were outraged. How did that happen? Well, we live in an age of outrage cancel culture, hot takes on Twitter. You see people getting all kinds of crazy about all kinds of things, not just people who are worshipers of other gods, but people like you and me getting all crazy, floating down the river of rage. Do you know what causes us to have that kind of outrage, that mob mentality that we see in this chapter? What causes us to have that kind of mob mentality is fear. Fear. Rage is the boat that floats down the river of fear. 
For Demetrius and the silversmiths and the people, there were people harried by life and hurry, hurried up to try to make themselves feel better. So they identify an enemy. His name is Paul and it's the people of the way. And we're going to scream at them. They're threatening our way of life. We're afraid that we're going to lose our businesses. We're going to lose our comfort. We're going to lose some of our families and relationships. We're going to lose all these things if this Christian stuff really does continue to take root. And Demetrius and all the people in the mob, they just didn't believe that the gospel that the church at Ephesus was proclaiming was true. They didn't believe that the gospel would make up for the losses that they would experience. And so they floated down that river of fear and they had rage. (laughs) You see it today. You see it today. People floating down the river of fear. in the boat of rage. You know why people are raged up? It's because Jesus threatens their way of life. He does. He threatens the choices that they make. Michael Gungor has gone the way he's gone, and I'm not a psychologist, but I am a pastor, and I've watched people for years and years in my own life. Michael Gunger believes what he believes today because he wants to live a life that is contrary to the way God wants him to live. Rage against us as we share the gospel is going to be expected. When we, the church, continue to preach the good news of God's rescuing love, you can anticipate outrage from the community. Expect it. Don't be surprised when you encounter various trials as though the testing of your faith was something unknown to God. Come on, folks. This is Bible. This is Christianity 101. When we see lives and hearts and communities changed by the gospel of God's grace, make no mistake, the the people who are not part of God's family are going to be outraged. They're afraid that they're losing something. When, When the gospel takes root in a community, people will be outraged. Share the gospel anyway. When when people are outraged, they begin to respond to the church in unreasonable and irrational ways. Guess what? Share the gospel anyway. When people respond to us in unreasonable and irrational ways, they will attack us and threaten us. Guess what? Share the gospel anyway. Don't lose sight of the mission even in the age of outrage. We share the gospel anyway. And friends, my brothers and my sisters, I want you all to look up here. Stop floating down your own river of fear. You watch the news stations and read your emails and Twitter posts and you see these threatening things that scare you to death. There's a resurgence of Marxism and communism and ideologies that are contrary to the will of God. Friends, that's nothing new. There's nothing new about that. And and you're scared of CRT. You don't even know what CRT is, but you're scared of it. You give it a name. You label it, you say, I'm scared of it. And guys, I got to tell you, I have a PhD in postmodern philosophy where I had to actually read the source documents of critical theory, which is the, uh, the father of critical race theory. 
and I got a PhD past everything in high colors, H plus, and I don't know what CRT is. <laughs> On top of that, I'm not scared of it. You know why I'm not scared of CRT? Because I got the truth. Stop spending all your time spinning your wheels about something that is counterfeit and start spending more of your energy filled with faith over the good news of God's rescuing love. Get off Fox News and get on your knees and talk to the God who has given you life. <laughs> Friends, listen, I know it's easier to point out an enemy and say, I hate that person. That's my enemy. I'm going to yell at them. Guys, listen. Did, the clerk, the city clerk, do you know what he said about Paul and the church at Ephesus? He said, these people haven't blasphemed Diana, and they haven't threatened the, the temple. You know what he was saying? He's saying, the church at Ephesus was making an impact, and they were not yelling at Diana or the false doctrines. You know what they were doing? They were spending all their time talking about the truth. When you show the genuine, the counterfeit will fade in its illustrious character. You show the genuine, people are going to start focusing on that. They want the true thing, not the false thing. Stop yelling about that which is false. Start focusing on that which is true. Get off the river of fear. You know why? Because even if we lose everything as followers of Christ, even if the rage machine takes everything away from us, we believe that what God has given us in the person of Christ is better than anything we might lose. We count everything as rubbish compared to the knowledge of God through the person of Jesus Christ to know him and the fellowship of his suffering, to partnership with the gospel. We believe that fellowship with God is greater than anything we might lose. Stop rallying for your way of life and take hold of the cause of Christ and find your life there. It's in this way. I know, I, and, and look, I know some of y'all going to say, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, look, if we believe I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we really believe that, then we're going to live that way and we're going to stop floating down the river of fear. We're going to start riding the wave of faith. It's time. It's time. People in the seven cities of Hampton Roads and around the world are waiting. They're waiting for a, a church who believes with all they have that Jesus is the only answer to their life's problem. They're waiting. The question is, will you join me as we are the church on mission, even in the age of outrage. Do you believe that the world needs to change? I mean, do you? Do you believe that the world needs to change? Do you, do you believe that Jesus is the answer? Do you? Then here's what you can do to change the world. Number one, pick one person who is far from God. Family, friend, neighbor, or in the nations. Number one, pick 
one person who is, right now, think about it, because I'm going to ask you to write their names down and put it here at this altar. I want you to think about that one person who is far from God, that one person that you know that does not know God. Think about that one person. That's the first thing. Identify one person who is far from God. Write their name down. Find a piece of paper somewhere around you. Write their name down. Envelopes in the uh, pew racks. Uh, scrap a paper in the back of your Bible or tear a, something out of one of the... Well, you probably shouldn't do that, but <laughs> I, won't, I won't police it. But just get you a piece of paper. Who is that one person? That's the first thing. Second thing, pray for that person every day. The reason I'm going to ask you to bring their names down here is because Tuesday at 6.30 in the chapel, I'm going to invite you to join me and others, and we're going to pray for each of these one persons by name. Every Tuesday at 6.30, we get together to pray. We don't get together to talk. We don't get together to hear a sermon. You don't hear a devotionette from Scripture. We get together to pray. This Tuesday at 6.30, come. And we're going to take all these names, and we're going to pray over them. This one person that God is laying on your heart, you pray for them every day. So first, identify them. Who's that one person who is far from God? Friend, family, neighbor, work associate. Who is it? That one person. Number two, pray for them every day. And we're going to join you as a family. We're going to join you in praying for them. Number three, third one. Tell that person who Jesus is. I mean, tell them. Tell them. And that, that's the most challenging part. I know it is. But there comes a point where you have to cross that line in the conversation where you move from talking about s- small talk to spiritual conversation where you actually begin to tell people Jesus is the only hope for your life. You're dead in your sin and trespass. Jesus is God who died for your sin upon a cross. If you will admit that you're a sinner, if you believe that Jesus is your only hope for rescue life, you turn from your sin and you commit and trust him as your only hope, then you can be rescued. But Jesus is the only way. You see your neighbors, your friends, your family, co-workers, they're struggling every single day. Everything's falling apart all around them. And you have Jesus and you're not telling them. It's time to tell. And it may be more than just one conversation. It may be multiple conversations, but it's time to tell. So in the next few minutes, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Our team's going to come out and they're going to lead us in worship through song. And as, as they're leading us through song, I, I want to encourage you Wherever you are, in the balcony here on Lofer, I want you to bring the name of that one. I want you to put it here. Because I can promise you, you'll be more intent to be committed to uh, pray and share with that one if you know that their name is right here. And then let's, let's see God change seven cities of Hampton Roads. It, it's not one person doing an heroic act that advances the kingdom of God. It is a team, a family, brought together by God's grace who advance the kingdom of God. Join us and let's make a difference. Father, right now, I pray that you would call us to be obedient to you and identify the one, to commit to pray for the one, to bring the name of the one down here at the front so that our church can pray for that one. God, I pray that you would
Give us the courage. Begin with me. Give us the courage to make a difference in our communities as we see hearts transformed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ.